0: In the New Testament, at one end of the day, I like to go to the Old Testament, to the other end of the day, and so I wanted to stay in the Old Testament while we're in the Book of Revelation, and then uh, when we're done with Revelation, I'm hoping to go back and finish off Genesis, and uh, and, and then uh, maybe in the evening move to the uh, New Testament. You get the pattern, you get the sense of where I'm going with that, but. Uh, I wanted to to look at the Psalms, we did the Psalms before we did uh, Proverbs, and we did the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of pilgrimage, of going on our lifelong journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we looked at those Psalms that spoke of God's people going to Jerusalem, and all the the troubles and trials that they encounter along the way. But I... When I was thinking about where to start again, I was looking at different parts of uh, of uh, the Old Testament. I thought, well, how about we start at the beginning of the Psalms and continue to work our way through? So that's what I'm going to do tonight. And uh, I uh, again ask your prayers upon our study that the, uh, that as we begin, the Lord would really bless uh, our look at the Psalms. The Psalms have been such a, a major part of our church and the part of Reformed churches in general since the time of uh, the Reformation. Calvin called it the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And and the the Psalms are are wonderful in that way in that they they allow us to say things to God that we would not normally feel courageous enough to say. And some of the Psalms become very, very dark, and, uh, and and other psalms uh, take us to heights that uh, is rarely found in human language and thought, and uh, it's a psalm book that is placed right in the middle of the Bible, uh, and that's for a reason. As King David came into prominence, as the kingdom of God came into provi- prominence, uh, as the the uh, kingdom of God arose, so did this whole body of praise that arose around it. And as Matthew Henry said, the Psalms are more relevant to us today in the New Testament age than they were uh, um, when they were written. And I, I alluded to a little bit of that this morning it, when I was talking in Cape Codvers about. How the Lord has revealed to us, He he has hidden. uh, uh, He he hid even from uh, the uh, Old Testament saints and prophets the full dimensions of His love and salvation, uh, to the point where they searched, they dug into it, and said, "What's going on here? What is this Messiah going to be like, Uh, and, and how is it ultimately fulfilled?" And it's only when we get to Jesus that we really are able to understand in a greater way than he David himself, how the Lord is my shepherd, How that is the case. We understand more than Isaiah of the, the man of sorrows who was appointed with grief We understand more. And uh, so uh, Matthew Henry was certainly right when he said that the Psalms are more applicable to us. Now we can see. Where the psalmist talks about the evangelization of the nations, Lord, let the nations be glad. In songs, their voices raise. You can imagine writing that, and how, you know, little David and little Israel would try to imagine how are the nations who are so sunk in darkness and paganism? How are they going to hear? How are they going to know? And when we come to the New Testament, we see. That it is through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the great commission that that now takes place. So we are able then to go back to the Psalms. We don't don't draw a line through the Old and New Testament and say, okay, that's that's an Old Testament thing. No, we go back and are able to say, now I know, now I understand what all that is about. And so, uh, uh, I want to read you the introduction in this Bible, and I think it's quite a good one to the Psalms. The, the book of Psalms is filled with the Psalms and prayers offered to God by the nation of Israel. Their expressions of praise, faith, sorrow, and frustration cover the range of human oceans. Some of the Psalms dwell on the treasure of wisdom and God's word, others, betray the trouble of the heart of a mourner. Still others explode with praise to God and invite others to join in song. Thy diversity is unified in one element. They are centered upon the one and only living God. This creator God is king of all the earth and a refuge to all who trust in him. Many of the Psalms are attributed to King David, The writing and the collection of the Psalms, in their present form, spans the 15th to the 3rd century, so quite a wide range there, the the, uh, 15th to the 3rd centuries, and they're all collected in this one book. But tonight, let's turn to Psalm number 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, one person has said that this psalm reveals the, the key concerns of the whole Bible, since it describes two fundamental classes of mankind. We saw that in Proverbs. The one who fears the Lord and the fool We saw that Proverbs divided uh, the human race into those two categories. The wise and the foolish. The wise were those who feared the Lord. Who accepted God for who he was and accepted the word of God for what it was. And related to God on that basis. But the fool driven by his own passions and his own pride sets those things aside and does whatever his wicked Flesh and mind, and tongue, uh, desire. And that can be said of uh, this psalm as well, that there are two kinds of people, the sinner and the righteous. And it's, a, it, it's important for us to think about why the psalm, the book of psalms, lead with this. <clears throat> because it's really drawing us into a question as to where we find ourselves. And it draws us in more than simply as churchgoers, but as those who delight in God. That's one of the key words in this. Delight has to do with love. Delight has to do with the heart. And that's ultimately what God is desiring, isn't he? In Proverbs, we saw that. Give me your heart, my son. And when we are Admitting people to the Lord's table or becoming members of the church, that is one of the things that we look for. Not simply, can you recite a creed? Or uh, have you done the class or any of these things? But is there evidence in your life of a delight in the Lord? And that will manifest itself in a number of ways. And so he con- contrasts. Uh, the two ways of life between the wicked and the righteous. And he begins this first psalm in this book of psalms with this word, blessed. We began our uh, call to worship. We began our worship service with the, with the, from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus enumerates what it is to be blessed. And it takes the world's understanding of blessedness and turns it upside down on its head. So it's really describing the the priorities of the man of God as compared to the world. And they are very different. So much so that the two cannot really walk together in agreement. That they are strangers to one another at a very fundamental level. And I'm sure you found that. In, in, maybe in your homes, or with friends, or uh, uh, people at school, or uh, your neighbors. In, in, in many ways, there's, you, know, you can relate to them in some ways. They share common interests, but at the most, most fundamental level, that you are strangers to one another. Jesus in Psalm 22 says that I am a stranger to my mother's son. I'm a stranger within my own family because Jesus' own family did not believe in him. And so uh, uh, it's something that, that found itself within the life of Jesus himself. This separation between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the believer and unbeliever. And I think there's something wonderful about that, isn't there? That Jesus himself knew what it was like to live with people who did not believe. Not not forever. We know that his family did come to believe in him and became leaders in the church. But for a time, that was not so. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffing. And so there's a, he begins here with a negative, who does not, his, his life is characterized by the things that he does not do, and then we see that he's characterized by the things that he does do. So there's a negative element, things that we don't do, the things that we do do. And so he, he uh, talks of these things here, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, you can see, as no doubt you have seen over time in this psalm, um, the idea of progression. They, he does not walk, or stand, or sit. You see, that when there's a progression there. You're walking along, then you stand, and then you sit. And so it really describes the whole course of a person's life. These words, and they're found throughout the whole Bible, as to describe our actions, the walk of life. Uh, Be careful how you walk, not as uh, unwise, but as wise, Paul says. So walk describes uh, the way a person lives. Steve Lawson in his commentary said to walk refers to the direction. He pursues the direction of life. We're all walking. We're all pursuing something. There's something that gets us out of bed in the morning. Some, there's things that keep us up at night. And the Bible is always trying to uh, uh, throw cold water in our face and say, what is it that we're pursuing? What is it that we're walking?" God sometimes pulls the rug out from under us to help us to see again what it, where it is we're going. And in, in what way are we walking? Lawson goes on to say that to stand pictures the commitments a person makes to various causes. We've often heard that as well. To take a stand. I'm taking a stand on this. You know, people would talk about, you know, climate change. Or I'm taking a stand on land erosion. Or I'm taking a stand on, you know any number of things, so that it it speaks of their commitment to a particular issue. Blossom goes on to say, to sit represents the settled attitudes of the heart, the fixed disposition of a person's heart. So sit. You sit, you come to a place where you've stopped, you're comfortable, in other words. When you sit down, you are comfortable. I, I think I'll just sit here. For this hour, this it, it it has to do with your settled disposition towards something, and he is saying that the man of God is not one who walks; that his course of life, his direction in which he is going, is not like the wicked. Jesus talked of two ways: the narrow way and the broad way leads to destruction. And so, I think I've got a loose. You can hear that down there. A loose board. I'll have to get a nail in it. Except, oh, it's squeaky. Uh, but the Jesus talks about this. And, and the, much of the language, as I've said before, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, can be found in the book of Psalms. Can be found in Proverbs. Can be found in the law. It is really what Jesus is doing is restating the law of God as it was meant to be saved. And so, he opens with this idea of what the righteous man doesn't do and what the righteous man does. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so that can be in various places. It can be at your workplace. It can be at your school. It can be in all sorts of places. We're seeing that today, especially when people in workplaces are forced to say what they do not believe. Say, if you're going to work here, if you're going to walk with us, you need to say these things. You need to call a man a woman or a woman a man. You need to lay aside the truth as you understand it of apply, and you must say what we want you to say. You must follow our counsel. And in order to... Uh, uh, to... Uh, continue to hold your job, you must bow to the spirit of the age. But the man of God stands on God's word, stands on God's truth. We don't have that right to say, no matter if our boss tells us to say, you may say it's something small. Well, I'm just saying, keep my jaws. It's just nothing, it's nothing, baby. And what would call him or her? Then, you know, I'm not going to it's my job, after all. See, but it's often the little things when the devil gets us. That's how he starts. It's the, the thin end of the wedge, as we might say. But the man of God knows that it's God's truth, and he's not willing to compromise. People will say, "Well, you 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 don't want to hurt the person, or you want to." Uh, Create an opportunity with the person. You don't want to turn them off. And it's no big deal. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to witness them down the road. And yet, uh, uh, we see that we are compromising. It's not just about them, first and foremost, it's God's truth. And it's the truth that sets us free, as Jesus says. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not take up their cause. He does not uh, uh, bind himself unequally. He does not yoke himself unequally. This is why the Bible puts such an emphasis on a believer marrying another believer. Not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, because in doing so you're standing in the way of sinners. What a I mean, that is probably the the highest expression of this. When an unbeliever, when a believer rather, chooses for whatever reason to to, uh, become one flesh with someone who does not understand them at the most fundamental level. And who may be in danger of pulling them away ultimately from their uh, faith and from their law nor sits in the seat of scoffers. They don't become, as a loss would say, uh, settled in their attitudes of the way the world stops at God's truth. As modern science does, as modern attitudes toward morality, they mock. We've seen that heavenly way. Over the years, people mocking the idea that God created all things, or mocking the morality of the Bible as being outdated. They will laugh, they will stop. The man of God, in his day-to-day healings, not just in Sunday, Sunday uh, evening or Sunday morning, nodding the head, saying, Yes, 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 I, I believe that. But then when we get out. Into into our family, we throw it all away for the sake of self-preservation. Well, we don't stand in the seat of mockers. Sit in the seat of mock- mockers out. But even if it costs us, we will not join with the mocking voices. We will stand on the truth of God, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, how that is mocked today. Right? Right? How dare you say that Jesus is the only way? How arrogant, how narrow-minded, and bigoted, how unloving. And they scoff, and they think that such uh, uh, understanding is not worthy to be tolerated. And so they will formulate laws to turn it into hate speech so that to even evangelize another group in some places becomes an expression of hate. And so the, the, the name of God is careful about these associations, careful about the ideas that he's imbibing about life, about salvation, and realizes that That our associations with these people, close associations, can be our undoing. So there's a real sense in which the decisions that we make on a daily basis are so important. So Proverbs 4 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, nor go in the way of evil men. And so, of course, this idea of walking, standing, and sitting is reflected in a positive way, isn't it, in the book, in the chapter that we read in Deuteronomy. Where, on the one hand, we are not walking, standing, or sitting with the wicked. But God says in Deuteronomy, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You see that? Deuteronomy is completely contrasting what the wicked are doing. But their wickedness is found in their walking, in their standing, in their sitting. It characterizes them. Their antagonism toward God and His reality. And so God says, Look, in order to counter that, in order to counter the wicked, you must be diligent in teaching these to your children as you walk along the way. We may say, when you're on your way to groceries, or you're walking along the beach, or when you Sit down and you rise up. In other words, Moses is saying, "Look, if you're going to survive in this culture, if you're going to teach your children and grandchildren to identify the wicked uh, walking, sitting, and standing, you must walk and sit and stand with your children and grandchildren in the truth of God each and every day. So there is a negative element that he speaks of here in a threefold way. In a threefold way, he really drives it home to us. That's how the Hebrews did something. It wasn't good enough for him to say, don't walk in the way of the wicked. But don't walk, don't stand, don't sit. He says, bang, 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 one, two, three, punch. And That's how the Hebrew uh, language, literature, did it. But he goes on in a positive way. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's not good enough to say he reads the law of God, or he studies the law of God, but he delights in the law of God. The psalmist said, I've hidden my word, hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. We sang that earlier. And so it becomes a delight. And of course, the, the word there, the word of God, as we were seeing when we studied Psalm 119, the law of God is not simply do this and don't do that. But the law incorporated the gospel as well. When we think of the law of Moses, Jesus said, Moses wrote about it. If you believed him, you should believe me, for he wrote with me. And the law, what we call the law, is not just the Ten Commandments. But it is the gospel contained in the law. Romans 3. But now a righteousness apart from the law is made manifest. Now listen to what Paul says. Which the law and the prophets testify to. In other words, Moses said there is a savior coming. He's going to die in the place of sinners. And when the psalmist delights in the law of God, he is delighting in the good news of the gospel. Not just you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness, but the law which incorporated all of these things is what he is thinking about. And that is what's driving them, driving the, the, the righteous man to walk To delight, because he's loving the God who did those things for him. Jesus said, Moses, or Abraham, saw my day and was what? Do you remember the word? Glad, glad, he was glad. He delighted in looking forward, seeing the day of Jesus. How did he see it? Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to a mountain that I will show you. And there, offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took his son. He gets up on Mount Moriah, and he's just about to sacrifice him in obedience to the Lord. And the Lord says, Abraham, stop! Now I know that you, you believe and you obey. Abraham turned, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. A substitute, and he offered him up instead of the son Isaac. And the resurrection took place in the life of the heart of Abraham. He received his son back from the dead. Where do we find that story? We find it in the books of Moses, in the law of Moses. We find the ceremonial law. Where the, the, the lamb was taken on the Day of Atonement and one goat, the scapegoat, confessed the sins of Israel over the scapegoat and then sent to go down into the wilderness, to be devoured by the wild beasts. The other lamb was taken and sacrificed to the altar. It's blood shed for the sins of the people. That is the law of Moses. And it's in that and out of that that the psalmist is saying, God loves me. God saved me in spite of myself by providing a substitute. And then as that unfolded into the prophets, it began to become clearer that somebody, someone would come and be that final and ultimate substitute. And it's out of that that we delight. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates. saying, that's why we can go back into Leviticus and into Numbers and into Exodus. And we can talk about the temple. We can talk about the the curtain. Remember how we talked about the curtain in Matthew? When when Jesus died, the curtain was ripped in half. Because in the temple, you see the gospel. And I've spoken to you before about being down in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and how the, the, the Mennonites have a life-size replica of the temple there in Lancaster. And you can go see it and you can get a tour through it. And the lady... I remember it so so. the uh, lady does tours all the time and she explains the different things in the temple. And I remember it so clearly she was expecting a child. she was out to the year, and she was going around trying to explain to us the things about the temple. and then as she closed, she spoke of the gospel. and she became, she became emotional as she started to talk about how this pointed forward to Jesus. There was such a beautiful thing. This woman who did this every day and yet she was moved that here in the temple itself, the gospel could be seen. And so Jesus says, I am the life." of the well, there was a There was a light there in the temple. I am the bread of life. There was the, the, the bread on the table. We come to God through the veil of His flesh. You see, it's not simply delighting in do this and don't do that, but do it because I have loved you, I have indeed you, I have saved you. That's where He's coming from. That's why, this, the, the, that's where the righteous man starts with the grace of God. We look at that with the Ten Commandments. He starts off with saying, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I have redeemed you. I have saved you. Now, here is my law. He delights in it. One person has said that the righteous lives in the presence of the Word. The Word made flesh. And he causes his law to be written on our hearts for our instruction. It's out of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, he pours out the Holy Spirit, and he writes his law upon our hearts so that we're able to say, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He delights in it. He doesn't just read it. He just doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't just go to church because he has to. He delights. He loves hearing the gospel. Loves hearing the good news. And I love when I see people who have been believers for years. They'll you know, hear a gospel sermon and it's something they've been hearing it for the first time. It's fresh and new to them. It's the old story that never grows old. Henry Law says that his table is spread with rich pleasures. The scriptures are his soul refreshing They gladden him with views of God as his own God, Christ as his own Savior, the Spirit as his guide and Sanctifying comforter, heaven as his home forever, and all things ordered for his well-being. That's why he delights. Wouldn't you? Shouldn't we? If the Word of God is made, And he obeys the law in our place. And he dies and rises again. And he applies that. He gives us his spirit and enables us to fulfill his law. Should we not then delight? Does this characterize you tonight? Do you delight in the law of God in this way? But his delight is in the law of God, the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And this is an indication that a person has been changed, has been born again. They can't get enough of it. Morning, noon, and night, the word of God is in their minds. If they're not thinking about it themselves and um, applying it to themselves, they're thinking about how they get it across to others. They're praying for their children and grandchildren that they learn. You see, that's what it means to be born again, because you're alive. You've been born again, says Peter, by the living word of God. By that incorruptible seed. And so your new relationship with God is completely different. It's, it's, you're tamping up with the word. You love it. The law of your mouth says the psalmist is better than thousands of gold and silver. And so the psalmist has an appetite for God's word. Not only to think about it, but to do it, to put it into practice. He stands on it. He, he abides in it. And so just as we saw the negative aspect of what the wicked do, he is now also walking in it. He's standing upon it. We take our stand there, No matter what the world's values are, no matter what the world says, is, it stops against the word of God. Isn't it hard? It can be hard in your workplace, can't it? With colleagues or friends who, around coffee or around the water pool, or, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about casually about modern around, LGBT movement, Assisted suicide and saying how how compassionate it is. And yet, there you are. Where do you take your stand? Are you standing upon the word of God? So it's not just something we affirm on Sunday, but we say, I will open my mouth and say, God's word says, even if it costs me this relationship or this job, He is like, then, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. In other words, the tree is positioned well, isn't it? He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It makes, it makes a difference where you're planted. You plant yourself in, exclusively in a university or exclusively in the workplace or exclusively on television, or on the internet, or allowing people to shape you in different places, you're going to produce a certain kind of thing. But if you position yourself in the Word of God, this is where your fruit is going to come from. And so it's important that we find ourselves in the house of God, in the word of God, at the Lord's table, at a Bible study, through the week, with our families, on our own. You see, all the Bible speaks of all of these scenarios. It talks about family worship. It talks about individual worship. It talks about corporate worship. It talks about Applying the word of God in every circumstance. So can you see then how he's not exaggerating when he says when you walk, when you sit, when you rise up, when you do all these things? The Bible commands us to say yes on Sunday. Yes at the midweek. Yes with the family. Yes by myself. All those ways the Bible says we are to do. And as we do, as we water ourselves in that environment, Jesus says we will bear much fruit. Abide in me. And that is directly tied to his word. We can't, we can't abide, say we abide in Jesus and not in his word. Jesus says, These things I say unto you that your joy may be full. What's the connection between your joy and what Jesus says? A very important one, right? We can't have that joy. We can't have that fruitfulness. We can't have the fruit of the Spirit without His Word, His Spirit. And so we bear fruit. Yields its fruit in a season. Of Joseph, it was said that the Lord has made all, made all that He did to prosper in His hand. Did he, was he not among the wicked? Potiphar's wife hounding I mean, him every day. There he was, off by himself, this young man. With all the temptations of the house of Potiphar and all of Egypt, away from his family, away from his father. No, it says that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hands. Why? Because he said things like, how can I do this thing against God? David, it was said, he went on and grew great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Of course, Jesus is supremely, isn't he, the man who is blessed. He is the ideal, king that goes beyond David. There weren't any blemishes in the life of Jesus. There was never any downtime in the life of Jesus, as it was with King David. He delighted in the law of God truly and fully and completely. And the good news is that because of what Jesus did in filling that, the moment a sinner, a wicked sinner, believes all of that is transferred to that person's life. And they are accounted righteous for Christ's sake. That's the, that's the value of this song because it points us to the one who himself was the true blessing righteous man. But someone who is able to communicate that blessedness to you and I. See, I can't communicate my blessedness to you in that way, can I? And you can't communicate it to me. But God does it through Jesus. He can declare you righteous the moment you believe. And out of that then you begin to have new appetites, new desires a new love for the Word of God, because it reveals to you over a course of centuries to prophets and shepherds and kings the centrality of Jesus Christ, right from the, right from Genesis, from the early chapters of Genesis, Jesus is there, through to Malachi, the prophets, the Psalms, and Solomon, Jesus. One of the greatest verses in the prophet Jeremiah is, he, this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord who is our righteousness. That's Jeremiah five centuries before saying there's coming one who will become our righteousness. Who will be the blessed man and will make us blessed through faith. He doesn't say that this blessedness comes without trouble. Well, it does come with trouble. When the blessed man takes his stand against wickedness, when he stands in the word of God, troubles do come. That's why the psalmist says, unless your law had been my delight, I should perish in my affliction. So it doesn't exempt us from trouble. You can still be blessed and in trouble. That's where Jesus sends. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, you can be blessed and mourn, blessed and be brokenhearted, blessed and persecuted. See, your blessedness, the happiness of the man of God in this first psalm doesn't come without opposition. Jesus promises it. They will not accept you if, because they do not accept me. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives the away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment door, sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Grace-Centered Study Bible says that those who follow the broad way that leads to destruction become hollow persons whose lives count for nothing beyond the grave and who perish at the day, at the judgment day. Listen to how they, it's described. They become hollow persons whose lives count for nothing. They are like chaff, the wind. Yeah. Another person has said that they cannot flee the dreadful tribunal. Their sins are all recorded. No blood blots out the stain. They plead no Savior's merit. They have no interest in the saving cross. No ground sustains their feet. They cannot stand. That is an awful destiny. We must examine ourselves in the light of these two very stark pictures. Where do I fall? Where do I stand? Do I delight myself? I'm not saying, I'm not saying are you a churchgoer? Are you, uh, you know, are you regular? I'm saying do you delight yourself? And how do we delight ourselves in Christ except by receiving him as our Savior? Look, if you have not received Jesus as your Savior, if you're not a Christian, then you're not delighting in God, no matter how much you go to church, no matter what our lives look like, we may good people, good mothers, fathers, neighbors, whatever it may be. But to not delight ourselves in the one who came and kept the law for unworthy sinners look is to despise God. And it is to take your stand with the wicked, with sinners, with stalkers. John says, whoever does not believe in Jesus has made God a liar because they have not believed God's report concerning his son. Isn't that extraordinary? So that whatever else we may say about our lives or what other people say about us, not to know Christ, not to receive him, is to take your stand with the scoffers, with those who accuse God, what greater scoffing can there be? But to point of the finger at God and say, "You are a liar," and that's exactly what the Bible says: "You have not believed God's report. You scoff." Every time you hear the gospel and turn away and say, "Not for me, not for me, not for me," you are holding God in contempt. And so, this is why it says, make no bones around it. There's no middle ground. There's not those who are undecided, as it were. They're not black or white or gray. They're in the middle. They're kind of sitting on the fence. They just don't know. No, it's right in the middle. And so, where do you stand tonight? On all these things. Do you delight in the law of God? Do you delight in the lawgiver? Do you delight in the one who realizes that you and I are lawbreakers? And that the only way we can be saved is for him to come and be punished for those sins and to enable us to walk in obedience to the law by his spirit? Do you delight in him? That's where it starts. I am the God who brought you up in the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Please examine your own heart tonight and ask yourself, where do I stand on these questions? Do I love God with all my heart, my soul, and strength? Do I delight in Him? And does that show itself in the choices, the decisions I make, in the conversations I have with people? Am I suffering for the truth? Am I rubbing up against the world? And does the character of my life suggests that, yes, I am standing on the truth of God? And that I have truly embraced the God who, give, who gave us the law to begin with. The God who gave his only son to fulfill the righteous demands of that law. Let's pray.